Welcome back to Poetry Says. I've had a little bit of a break over Poetry Month over August. We are now midway through September somehow. And over the next six weeks or so, I'm going to release the interviews that I did for that project, which was facilitated by the lovely people at Red Room Poetry. I've been thinking a bit about my approach here. I really want to edit less and I want to be more forthcoming if I can, if I have the guts to. We'll see how we go with that. Um, This is the first interview I did for Poetry Month. This is a chat with John Kinsella. In my ideal world, the Australia Council would pay for me to fly to Perth where I would interview John and I would interview his wife, Tracy Ryan, who uh, whose book Scaravision was really, really important to me when I first started reading poetry. And I'd interview a whole bunch of other Australian poets and go to readings and really get a sense of what it's like over there. None of that is going to happen. So <laughs> I got... Uh, put in touch with John through Red Room and we did this interview via Zoom. All these interviews are via Zoom. I really wish they weren't. I really wish they sounded better and that everybody didn't have Zoom voice. Uh, I don't know if you are on the same page as me, but I am at the point with Zoom where I'm really having to work hard Uh, to deal with my deep Zoom resentment. I just can't hack it anymore. Um, Yeah, don't take it personally if I haven't come to your Zoom thing. It's nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with me and my... uh, the fact that I'm just incredibly sick of Zoom. I just can't... I can't handle it. I can't handle it anymore. Uh, I'm just sad that all the stuff I had planned for the rest of this year isn't going to happen. The last interview I put out before Poetry Month back in July was me talking to my co-producer about these shows. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. We all know the drill. Um, But yeah, this, this interview happened anyway, despite my lack of Australia Council funding and ability to fly to Perth. Um, I didn't apply to the Australia Council, by the way. No shade on them. Um, And yeah, the thing about interviewing John Kinsella, which is obviously, I mean, John is this force in Australian poetry. And he's always been on my mind as somebody that I would like to talk to, maybe that I need to talk to. But he's written so much, right? Like he's written over 30 books of poetry. And I know that I'm not alone in feeling like approaching this body of work is a task that I'm just not up to. Um, yeah, I, I feel like that's a feeling that, that some other people I've spoken to also share. It's not just John's work that brings up that feeling either. This is this is more of a, a side issue um, with poets who've written a lot and whose work that I've come to late. Um, This is the reason that I will probably never interview Pio, for example, because my signed and dedicated copy of Fitzroy has sat on my shelf since that book was launched. 
amazing launch, incredible launch. I haven't read Heidi. Um, I don't think I'm going to. I uh, One of my favorite podcasters uh, has said many, many times, like, don't put something on your to-do list that you're just not going to do. It just becomes a, a source of guilt. I think the way to interview Pio on this show would be to invite him to be in conversation with somebody who really has put in the work and has properly read and properly apprehends that work. So, uh, you know, someone like friend of the show, Liam Fernie, has written a great review of Heidi. Gig Ryan has obviously written very intelligently on that book as well. So something like that would be great. This is a total side issue to John Kinsella's work, obviously, but it's all of which to say... This is my thinking when I am going into an interview like this. I have, you know, completest and perfectionistic tendencies. And so I was like, well, I can't interview John until I can get to Perth and until I can um, read all the books. But none of that was going to happen. And the great thing about this project for Poetry Month is there wasn't time to indulge in any of that perfectionism. The interview got booked and then it was happening. And... Uh, I couldn't possibly do all the reading I wanted to do in time. But the cool thing was that I realized when I actually sat down and thought about it that I had a bunch of questions that I wanted to ask John anyway and many more than I managed to get to in this conversation. Um, the main thing that I was interested in was his project that he put together with um, Charmaine Paper Talk Green, False Claims of Colonial Thieves, which came out in 2018. And uh, so we talk a bit about that particular work. And one thing that John says in the recording is that some of the best critical responses to the book came from Indigenous critics. But he also wanted me to note that non-Indigenous critics have also sought to appreciate the text in ways that he um, is really happy with. So he didn't want to discount that critical response as well if that's what it sounds like in the recording. We talk about writing in community, which is a theme that kind of runs through all these Poetry Month interviews that I want to put out, because I don't think we do this work in, in isolation. Um, that's my argument anyway, and I put that to the poets that I talk to. Uh, we talk about travel and the building of empathy and how John's approach to poetry has changed since he started writing because obviously 30 books he's been writing for a very long time um, and I get to ask him about this poem of his that I really really like that he wrote for Australian Book Review's States of Poetry project it's called Graphology Endgame 100 I Am a Dickhead uh, amazing title very funny poem I'll read the first uh first couple of lines here to sort of give you a sense of it because we don't talk about that in the interview it starts like this I am a dickhead in ways I thought I wasn't I am a dickhead in ways people who call me a dickhead can't imagine I am a dickhead in ways people who call me a dickhead can imagine I am a dickhead with residues and hangovers of misapplications of beliefs I am a dickhead whose interior was an adequate backdrop for exterior worlds I am a dickhead who has tried to leap synaptic gaps to make conversation. 
I am a dickhead who in damning his past and his roots via heritage has liberated none. And it goes on from there. It's a great poem. I'll link to it. I highly recommend that you read it. Uh, and John also shares a, a really um, beautiful and more recent poem than that to end the episode. So I really hope you you enjoy this one. I hope you enjoy all the Poetry Month interviews that I'm going to put out over the next six or so weeks. And I hope you're doing okay. Uh, let me know how you are doing. I'd love to hear from you. I'm uh, sitting there on, on Twitter if you want to chat at poetry underscore says. Um, yeah, just sending heaps of love to you wherever you are and uh, whatever's going on for you today. ask you a question about poetry months to begin with and the fact that it's only just now in 2021 that we're having our very first celebration of poetry bringing together poets and readers across the country and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the potential for something like this or maybe what you would like to see come out of something like poetry month what would your hopes be well, I'm very, I believe in poetry as a community thing. Uh, I mean, I write, you know, quite personally in many ways, quite isolated, though usually as a kind of engagement with activist um, actions and so on as well. So there's a real mix there. But I think that things that celebrate poetry should be communal. I think that a kind of, it's a sharing process. So rather than the kind of laureate idea, which I've always found slightly worrying, even objectionable at times, um, the, the highlighting of one figure as being representative of, say, you know, the British Poet Laureate or, you know, the American Library of Congress Poet, that kind of thing, where one person is given a significance. I think that these things should be about many voices um, because our communities are made up of many voices and I think poetry is a pluralistic, interactive activity the idea of it being, you know, the, the lonely garret kind of thing is fine. Poet writes as a poet writes. I totally respect that. But I think that when a poem goes out in the world, it is a communal thing. Many people hopefully read it and talk about it or speak it, hear it. Um, so, yeah, I think the basis has to be communal, as many voices as possible, um, and no um, sense of a particular poet being exclusive or um, representative of many people who, who they who and whom they can't represent because you know you are uh, a community uh, is made up of so many voices and communities overlap I was going to ask you about community as well and admit to you that one of the first things I do when I pick up a new book of poetry is skip straight to the acknowledgements I don't know if I'm alone in that I think other people do that as well and I do that because I also believe that poetry happens in community, uh, contrary to that myth of the poet in the garret that you mentioned. You're married to the poet Tracy Ryan, and I wanted to ask you if you could talk about whether other poets around you, other writers, have been sources of support and inspiration. Um, oh, well, well, you know, 
Alice, I am um, one little tiny sort of speck in a you know a big dust storm of poetry. Um, no, you know this house. You know, as I said, we live quite isolated. Uh, our son Tim, who's eighteen, and is you know a poet as well, and poetry is a very big part of his life. He often writes further down the house and so on. So this house is actually a community of poets, and not only us individually, but all we read, the various people we speak to, um, and we are kind of part of many um, interactions. So, you know, physical isolation isn't mental isolation. And, uh, you know, everything I've ever written has been informed by you know, hundreds, if not thousands of other poets and poems. Uh, nothing happens in, in the poetry uh, world as far as I know. When I say the poetry world, I don't mean even a, a social world. I mean the, the world of being part of a poem, of making poems, of reading poems, of uh, hearing poems, they're, they're all, they all cross over and interconnected. The idea of being a lone poet, I find, I find incredibly, um, well, almost frightening and overwhelming because whether I grew up surrounded by poetry, my mother was a poet and, and stopped writing when she was relatively young, but, you know, she published a bit here and there and so on and, you know, brought me up. Um, reading poetry to me from a very young age. You know, as I've said many times, I heard Paradise Lost being read when she was studying Milton for exams when I was very young. She, you know, read me Wordsworth and Keats and so on. So I had, because she was very interested in the English romantics and the British romantics as well, because the Scottish romanticism as well and some Welsh uh, romanticism, but uh, primarily the English romantic poets. And so I grew up hearing this stuff, but equally important were hearing nursery rhymes and you know, various other uh, kind of modes of expression. It wasn't just that mode of expression. So poetry was a very broad kind of concept for me. And it wasn't just from my mum, it was from my grandmother and various other people. It was, I was saturated in it. It's really been quite exciting actually in life to be part of a way of thinking and communicating. We're almost in the family speaking poems. It's the strangest thing. And so many influences, you know, and you know, Tracy, I, I've lived with Tracy for decades and decades now. And, um, you know, she's a very solitary worker and very private in her working things. But she also believes in, uh, you know, the sharing and nature and influence and all these kind of being influenced by other things and, and speaking across uh, a range of different poetics. So um, you know, when the poem actually comes out and you hear it, it becomes part of the broader conversation. For me, other people's poetry and what they do is inseparable from what I do and how I think about poetry. I just, it's never alone. And in my most alone moments in my life, and I've had some pretty full-on ones, there's been that. What you're saying there also reminds me of a book that you published with Charmaine Paper Talk Green a couple of years ago called False Claims of Colonial Thieves that you wrote in conversation, sort of a epistolary back and forth. It's a few years on from that book now. And what I wanted to ask you was, have there been any responses to that book that have been interesting or surprising to you since it's come out? Really interesting. The, the, the nature of responses to that book I mean, the book has been, um, it seems fairly widely read. It's been through a number of reprints and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's still exciting for um, me and I'm sure for Charmaine as well. When it came out, 
what fascinated me was that the most exciting um, and uh, intense critiques actually almost universally came from within um, Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal critics who engaged with the idea of Charmaine engaging with someone with a settler colonial background, as I do, which is a complex one in the sense that my so-called quotation marks pioneering ancestors had been colonised Irish who many of whom had, you know, the family had been killed by the British occupation of Ireland. They fled during the Great Famine and um, they became colonists themselves and, and, and colonialists themselves. So some fabulous pieces were written about, you know, basically pulling that whole dynamic to pieces. And um, that was exciting because... I learned something about the way these texts could be read. I learned something about the way Charmaine's texts were written in the critique as well. There were some interesting non-Indigenous kind of uh, reviews, but primarily they were cautious and they were um, not quite, I'm not saying this universally because there were some that were, you know, really trying to, uh, Dan Disney I'm thinking of in particular, he really understood what was going on, Tony Hughes' death, understood uh, what's going on and, and others. But primarily the uh, understanding and the, and the problematizing certainly of, you know, where my position is um, came from Indigenous critics and that was really, really fantastic and opened a way through for me. It, it remains an exciting process and to me the most necessary of all writing processes. So this brings me to another question I've been wanting to ask you for a long, long time. I think you were writing in Jacket many years ago and you were one of the first people I read to comment on the ecological impact of data storage, which at the time was a really new concept, something we weren't yet at all concerned about, which now seems relatively urgent. And well before the current transition to online meetings over travel all over the world, um, you were making a strong effort not to travel by air. Yep. So my question around all that is, how have you seen attitudes amongst poets shift on choices like this over the past year? Do you, do you feel any shift taking place? And if there is one, do you think it's one that has any permanency? Well, I'm, unfortunately, I don't think it has um, short-term permanency, if you can say such a thing. Sounds contradictory, but um, I, you know, obviously I celebrate anything that uh, reduces impact um, on ecologies, on the biosphere. Um, yeah, look, I haven't flown in Australia. I've flown in Australia once, I think, in 14 years. I have flown overseas to get to Europe and then have travelled by ferry and train and uh, so on. I've, you know, we've done everything we can to reduce that. I haven't met many, if any, other poets who have that commitment. I know that Margaret Atwood um, talked about it for a while and she did a, a couple of things she didn't travel on, but then I saw later that she had resumed doing so. Now, that I'm not privy to the reasons for that, and there could be you know, all sorts of you know, quotation marks, good reasons, so I'm not, it's not a judgment. I'm just saying that she had actually brought it up 
quite early on. Um, I don't know if it's stuck. Obviously, now she's doing things by Zoom as everyone is. But I also think we have to be conscious of um, the impacts of you know, digital media uh, in terms of environment, you know, running the servers of the world uses as much energy as uh, a European country, that kind of thing. And I use power and I interact and I use digital materials. And so I'm not exonerating myself in this, but I think I do think we have to do it with a consciousness of how much and how we're doing it, certainly how we travel. Because the thing is, once um, we reach, it's like uh, the, the point where it's impossible to pull back from, is we haven't reached that point. Whatever anyone says, we haven't reached that point. Then people even let go more when they think they have is that I think that everything we can do to reduce our impact is a good thing. We're always performing within these contradictions. So the, the, the mining industry will point out that um, you know, you're using the window frames or you're using the, you know, the car or you're using, it might even be something like a ballpoint pen, <laughs> the metal on the end of the ballpoint pen, the, the plastics, whatever it is, you're implicated in it. And the poem is a way of showing how within the poem you can actually build in how yes we are caught in that we are doing this but we don't want to um we want to find a way through you can't say to us that uh we are you know complicit in um what you do and thus you know supporting what you do by using the products that come from what you do because in the poem we are showing that yes we do that but we don't want to do it and we're trying to find a way through some other form of expression that allows us to talk a world um, that works in a different way. So for me, the poem is, is a way of creating uh, a pathway through the labyrinth and the way the poem being a labyrinth itself. Um, and you find your way through, through basically almost by creating a different kind of language of discussion around these issues. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, probably the best how should I say like the best unpacking of for lack of a better phrase what a poem can do <laughs> that and has it, can, well, it actually can do it too it can mm. I've seen this happen I have seen poems do incredible the poem in itself might not do anything I mean it's, it's a you know it's words in your head or words spoken or words on the page whichever version because they're all wonderful versions of poem but the poem in its process both in its writing, but also in making it in the world and bringing it to the world can really have dramatic impact, can bring dramatic change. And, you know, in civil rights changes, in uh, human rights changes, in uh, environmental positive changes, uh, in identity um, sort of uh, discussions and all these things that are, are so important in discourse and so important in people's lives, a poem can suddenly just, home, focus, enrich, and do all these things at once. I've seen it happen. And I've, as I've said many times before, because I was there, poems can stop bulldozers. And sometimes they don't either, and sometimes the bulldozers keep going, and sometimes the bulldozers kill people in the process. But um, I have seen incredible things happen through poetry in environments in which you wouldn't think it possible. If you're arguing over um, the destruction of environment, for example, and suddenly something sounds like a strange you know, bird call or animal you've never heard before, it makes you balk 
and then you start understanding you you know this this is speaking to me i'm i'm part of the uh the biology of this poem i'm destroying a biology but i'm part of the biology of this poem i've seen this happen it's real and um people can say what they want about how ridiculous i have seen it and i have been involved in many 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 protests uh, where poetry has been affected speaking of poetry's capacity to change uh, i really really enjoyed your poem from Australian Book Review's States of Poetry collection for WA called Graphology Endgame 100, I Am a Dickhead, which begins... No, I am. <laughs> which begins, I am a dickhead in ways I thought I wasn't. And I wanted to ask you about changes in your attitudes uh, towards poetry and writing, given that you've written so many books over many years. What are some of the attitudes and beliefs that you held when you started writing poetry that have changed, maybe softened or maybe gotten stronger? Well, I think probably the main thing that's changed is that poetry was originally um, a way out for me. And, you know, as time's gone on, it's become a way in. And by which I mean I was very, very alienated as a young person. I've written a lot about bullying and being bullied. And um, it, which irritates some people. They don't like that conversation. They don't like to hear people saying it. Um, but, you know, the um, absolutely rebarbative nature of schooling in my era and the cruelty and vindictiveness that one experienced as an outsider in the schooling system, which I certainly was. I mean, I was not an outsider academically. I was very academically orientated. I mean, an outsider socially. You, they, it makes you it makes you unfortunately quite bitter when you're young and I didn't I don't like bitterness I don't think it's a useful um, affect I think it's uh, destructive in all sorts of ways and I didn't want to be that and I mean I wrote poetry from a very young age but I seriously started writing poetry from 13 to 15 and uh, I, I realized I was thinking about it more as a way out from the world I was in. But by about 17, I started thinking, no, this is not what it's about. It's a way in. It's a way in of understanding the things that I find threatening. And maybe in understanding that, I can uh, understand myself better. And, I, you know, I became, a, as you might know, a, a vegan, an anarchist, a pacifist. The pacifism was hard-earned. I, you know, I was very aggressive. I was, you know, alcoholic and so on. I, I got sober in 1995 and I had addiction problems and I was uh, very aggressive in all sorts of ways, um, especially towards myself as well. And I learned not to be. And I realised that this sort of anger I had in me was really futile and senseless. And, yeah, I started speaking out to community and I started trying to understand why other people felt they did and why bullies were bullies, you know. Um, the thing about bullying, it's a, it's a sliding scale in so many ways. Bullies are usually bullied at some point in their lives and um, developing empathy. So the big shift in my poetics came when I was in my late teenage years and it's the word empathy. I didn't, don't mean I got it. It took me a long time to get. I probably didn't mature until I was about 40, but um, I have such a different politics. I have a such different ethics and such in so many ways from so many others I know I admire and are friends with. And I realised that, you know, I admire their ethics and their moralities and their way of doing things as different as they are from mine. And that's all about empathy. 
And it's not a quality of goodness. It doesn't mean I'm better for having more empathy. It simply means that empathy is an idea that I need to constantly explore. And I'm a dickhead because I, um, I think already, still to this moment, I think every time that I, you know, I have an empathy, when in fact I probably have a lot less empathy than I think I have, and that will always make me a dickhead. And that's a driving thing for me, not to not become a dickhead, but just to accept that I am. I suppose the thing in that poem is that uh, the things people think I'm a dickhead for um, are probably less of a worry to me than they are to them. I've, you know, dealt with those things um, that they find annoying and, you know, have put them where they belong, probably for me, and tried to accommodate them. But, yeah, uh, I, it's empathy and it's the most important, I think, characteristic and attribute of a literary text that you can have. If you can't have an empathy with it and it doesn't have an empathy with its reader, then it might be interesting, it might be useful, but it will always be alienating. I, I suppose in the end it all comes back to this. I get quite um, disturbed by the, the false binary between, um, as, you know, the kind of aesthetics, well, I, I write against aesthetics, I don't believe in aesthetics. I, it's a long story and I've written a lot about it, so I won't bore you with it here, but I, the binary between aesthetics and activism, I don't think there is one. Um, I think that uh, we, you know, I'm looking outside as I speak to you at you know, bush, you know, valley, and, and you know, there are animals out there and uh, they're not, they're not animals I quotation mark own or restrain or they're just they're just living there and moving as they wish and I don't want to interfere with their lives we our lives come into contact of course and we we are aware of each other but I don't want to I don't want to own anything I don't want to possess anything I but I want uh, poetry very much to be about um, an avenue of exchange. So not these binaries, not these um, you know, false dichotomies, but literally exchange. I don't want to have conflict with anyone over ideas. I want to have conversation. So I suppose that would be my word. In the end, a poem is a conversation to me, and I want to hear what you've got to say. I want to read it. I read vast amounts every day of my life. And that's and listen as well, and that's important. And speaking is about listening, and writing is about reading and, and hearing. Would you be happy to read us a poem to take yes, us out? Yes, I'll read a poem. I think what I'll read is a little poem from actually a new book Vagabond have just brought out, Super Vivid Depastoralism. And the reason, the reason I'll read this is because... Um, I've written a, a series of books uh, of poetry that try, they're primarily anti-pastoral books that try and pull the pastoral to pieces and what it means. Uh, there's Pastoral Symphony, Silo, Pastoral Symphony 1995 is part of a trilogy that also includes The Hunt that came out in 1998 and then The New Arcadia that came out in 2005. And this book, which has just come out literally in the last day or so, Super Vivid Depastoralism, the Super Vivid refers to Super Vivid Dreaming, um, which people are said to have had increased during the pandemic. I've always had super vivid dreaming. I sleep very little and I have terrible insomnia. In fact, my book before that, last book, is called Insomnia. And uh, but when I do sleep, I have very, very, very vivid dreams. 
very tactile and I take them into my day. So it's uh, this book is a kind of answer to the earlier trilogy of pastoral. It's a decolonizing pastoral. The pastoral cannot be decolonizing. It's a decolonizing of pastoral. And this poem, which opens, um, it's the second poem in the book, is called Eclogue of Moon Before the Storm. The moon is dark adapted as red clouds herald late, a single flyer, single wing buffeted and torn and tossed down to form a skin between ink and record, the sum of what's reflected. Our search is dark adapted, where fire had edged the world, a rush of darkening gale leaving no time for adjustment. Unnocturnal birds fly away, lopsided into scrawl of a nation of collapsed skywriting, a gall of vaticination.